clients are looking for is advice on their entire balance sheet. If you think about our high net worth clients, if they're borrowing from us, have their deposits with us, if they're investing with us, if they're doing their trust services with us, banks don't generally do a good job of looking at it holistically and pricing that way. If you know somebody and you've worked with them for a long time, you're going to trust them more than somebody that's brand new. So employee longevity is key. To be a high performer, you've got to be great in teams. You can't be a one-trick pony. You've got to have a broad product platform. And the third one is high performers have written business plans. We don't do wealth events. We don't do private banking events or commercial events. We do bank events. If there's going to be an event, they're all together planning it and working together. We spend a lot of time in our practice management courses on conducting discovery. Conducting discovery for the typical advisor is hard because the first thing is you've got to ask great questions. And the most important thing is you've got to listen. Hello, and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. In addition to industry trends, you will hear our guests provide their perspectives on the evolving strategic initiatives that are driving success and enabling our channel to better compete in the broader financial services industry. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at Ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. Hello and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch. I am Scott Stathis. I will be your host along with Bob Mattel, who will introduce himself in a moment. So this month, we'd like to dig deeper into a subject we started exploring in previous episodes, and that is wealth management. Specifically, what is the difference between investment services and wealth management? How does trust and private banking figure into the equation? How does compensation factor in? How is teamwork optimized across departmental lines? All that kind of stuff. And I think we have the perfect guest to explore this with. So, Bob, why don't you introduce yourself and then have our guest introduce himself? That sounds like a plan. Well, hello, everybody. I am Bob Mattel, and let me welcome you to this, our holiday jingle bell edition of the BISA Industry Trend Watch. As Scott said, we have another great podcast to go through today. 
But before we meet our guests, let me remind you to visit BISANet.org for all things BISA, especially the upcoming 2023 annual conference from February 26th to March 1st. It's so big now, it's in two months, February and March, at the Fountain Blue in Miami. So now, let's just take a moment and meet our guest today, Rome's Hour from First Horizon. Good afternoon. Thank you, Bob and Scott. I'm honored to be here. Yes, my name is Rome's Hour. I'm with First Horizon. First Horizon is a Southeastern bank, $85 billion in bank assets, headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee. And my responsibility, my title is CEO of First Horizon Advisors, which is a trade name for our wealth management offering, which incorporates our investment program, our financial planning program, trust services, insurance, and private banking. Awesome. And we thank you so much for being with us today. So everybody, let's sit back, get your eggnog ready, because again, this is the holiday edition. And let's get this whole conversation right. started. Bob, but since you're, since you're saying it's a holiday edition, you have a really deep voice. You have to give us a ho, ho, ho. <laughs> oh, yeah, there we go. That's it. But you know what? Before we get into wealth management, I can't help but, you know, we've got a real veteran of the industry with us today. And, and I know there's been so much volatility in the markets. And I just wanted to start with like a pre-question, so to speak. But this is BISA Industry Trend Watch. And Rome's, you know, I just want to get your take on what's going on in the environment today in terms of product mix and how is that affecting any of your plans for next year? And, you know, is the volatility in the market affecting any different product sales? And, you know, how are you guys tackling that uh, in terms of 2023? Well, Bob, thanks. That's, uh, that's an interesting question. We actually have a practice management program that we've implemented here at First Horizon. And the uh, subject for this quarter is the uncertainty in the market. So you've got the market volatility. You've got interest rates at levels that they've not been at. For a number of years, you've got wars that are affecting supply chains. You've got political issues that we're dealing with. And so what we're talking to our folks is, how do you talk to your customers, interact with them and address all these issues, right? So the way we look at it is at the core of it all is you've got to help your client with their plan. If they've got a plan of action and a financial plan, then really the products will take care of themselves depending on the client's needs. So to your point with volatility, there are people that are, you know, maybe a little bit concerned about the financial markets. So now they can get actually rates on bank deposits. We've got fixed annuities with attractive rates as well. They're great insurance products that can help them as well. So we're going to see people maybe moving away from the equity markets and really looking at other opportunities to leverage products to implement their financial plans. Yeah, and I think that's that's so timely, especially based on this conversation today about wealth management. And you're right. You know, if you have a financial plan and you're following that financial plan, everything will take care of itself. And who better to talk about financial planning than you from First Horizons? I remember you guys doing this back in the late 90s. I, I remember actually being on a panel discussion in 1998. I'm going to throw the name out there, Laverne Crouch, from way back when we were talking about financial planning back in 1998. Here it is. 25 years later, exactly. And, you know, you guys are the experts. You guys are the leaders. So that's just like you know, the perfect backdrop for a conversation around wealth management. So with that, let's really get the party started now. And Scott will bring us back to wealth management, I'm sure. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Romes. And you may remember this, but you guys have been into financial planning for so long that back in the early 2000s, I was running a financial planning software company and you guys were our biggest client. 
<laughs> so there's a history there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I remember. Yeah. So let's talk about wealth management. And what's interesting is if you look across our industry, and I'll paint a broad brush kind of a stroke here, is most programs in banks and credit unions have historically been called investment services programs, right? And all of a sudden, we're seeing some of those same programs now being referred to as wealth management programs. So is this window dressing? And what are your opinions on what the real differences are? If we were to be honest about it, what are the real differences between an investment services program and a true wealth management program? Yeah, that's an interesting concept that we've talked about for a number of years, right? So to your question about is it window dressing, it can be window dressing if it's not executed. So it's all about execution. And so when you think about investment services and wealth management, the way we look at it at First Horizon and the way we're training our folks is basically what the clients are looking for is advice on their entire balance sheet. So if your investment services, you're missing pieces, you're missing the borrowing piece, you're missing you know, how they do their deposits, you may be missing some of their estate planning needs. But if you're looking at their entire balance sheet and you're communicating to your clients about how we've got the teams and the capabilities and the products and the processes to help them understand how to manage their entire balance sheet, then I think that's really what true wealth management is about. There are a lot of firms that are doing bits and pieces of it. Some are doing it better than others, but I think everybody's going in that direction of looking at really the entire balance sheet. And, you know, we look at research quite a bit and well, research will tell you that banks are in a great position to help their clients with full balance sheet because most of our clients are going to come for banking services. We've got their loans and deposits. We've got a lot of information on how they spend their money with their credit cards and everything else. So, Introducing the wealth management piece just brings it all together and allows us to look at their entire balance sheet and help us help them manage that. So, so I love that answer. And we, we talk about that in a few different contexts. So in a broad context, in our mind, the entire balance sheet, broadly speaking, involves two big things, right? One, helping them manage assets, but two, helping them protect assets. And you mentioned in response to Bob's initial question that you're seeing insurance products come to the kind of the forefront in our current environment. So can you address that? And that being, do you also believe that if you're a good advisor, your job is to do those two things primarily, help manage assets and help protect assets? Yes, I think I think those are two very important concepts. There's two more that I'll mention. One is also helping the clients with their cash flow, right? Because even we, when we talk to our affluent clients, even the affluent clients worry about spending, overspending, and how to manage that. So I think a good wealth management program and a team is looking at also how they're spending. But you cannot do any of that if you're not protecting your clients' assets. And insurance is basically a protection. And there are some great strategies out there around helping clients not only protect their assets, but also plan for the future and, and make sure that their estates are taken care of. And a lot of that can be done through insurance products. Yeah. So, you know, one of the significant implications in what you're saying is that you have to be working effectively as a team, right? Across departmental lines. So we're going to dig into that a little bit more. And Bob has a question lined up about that. But let me ask you a question that I think is important as we look forward, because you mentioned that one of the important things is helping clients with cash flow. Well, I mean, if you if you really take that to where it's going, 
the reality is if you're a trusted advisor, you're going to be helping clients with not only liquid assets, but illiquid assets too, that you typically don't get compensated for, right? So how is how we charge for our services going to evolve if you consider where that model is going? And I believe the model is going there strongly, right? We're going to be helping clients with everything, liquid assets, illiquid assets, advice on a bunch of stuff. And in our value for value economy, we have to figure out a way to get compensated for that. Have you guys thought about that at all? Yeah, we think about it all the time. And I don't know that the industry has come up with a good solution. And a lot of it has to do with the way banks are siloed to some extent. Because if you think about our high net worth clients, if they're borrowing from us, if they have their deposits with us, if they're investing with us, if they're doing their trust services with us, banks don't generally do a good job of looking at it holistically and pricing that way, right? So I know situations where we may have a client, we pay up for their deposits, we discount their loan, we discount their investment fee, and we really don't know what the return on that client is. So the industry, the people that are doing it well in the industry, in that, in that space, are going to be able to look at a client holistically and bundle pricing, I guess, if that's the proper terminology. I know First Horizon is not there yet. I'm not sure who is. That would be a great case study, but there is a challenge in, in doing that. So again, because banks operate in silos and you've got the different sides of the bank, we haven't really done a good job of bringing all that together and, and pricing appropriately, I don't think. Yeah. Part of the challenge, and I want to hand it over to Bob, but part of the challenge is P&L silos, right? Each department yes, has their own yeah. P&L. And so you get yeah. into this reductionist thinking, you don't look holistically at the overall profitability of a client, right? And that's right. That's sometimes a dangerous place to be. I think that's one of the things we have to solve for, right? So, yeah. all right, well, some of this discussion leads right into Bob's next question, I believe, Bob. So take it away. Yeah. yeah. And actually, before I get into that, I, I have to go back to the whole, what true wealth management is and the pricing of that, because we definitely got it. And having been an old banker, we understand how to do it from the expense side for sure, because you get allocations from every single department in the bank realms, I am sure. We can figure out how to pay a percentage of the CEO's salary, but we can't figure out how to allocate the interest margins for a wealth management client. Yeah, that's well stated. I agree. And uh, we'll get there someday, but that's we're not there yet. Sure. Yeah. And I know it's always easy to take money out from the expense side, but to give money back for, you know, for when a financial advisor says, you know what, we have a 40 year CD that's paying 3%. You might want to put, I don't know, X dollars in there. We should be able to figure that out. But we can absolutely know what the cost of that is, but not the revenue. So yeah, I'll rest on that and move into my first my, into the next question. It's also about silos and how we mesh effectively with trust, for example. And you guys have a trust department, right? Yes. So how do you get the investment program or now the wealth management program to mesh effectively with trust and private banking? As I know, you have private bankers as well. I mean, talk about silos. Help us understand how that works in your organization. Okay. And don't forget that we've also got mortgage bankers. We've also got commercial bankers. And we've also got retail bankers. How we do it is interesting. So I'll give you some concepts and a lot of it is about execution and we execute it better in some places than others. And I'll tell you sort of what makes that happen. So first of all, it's got to start with culture. So the culture of the organization is going to drive a lot of that. I don't think that banks can eliminate silos. I think silos are here to stay. So really the way we think about it is how do you minimize or manage those silos and how do you take those silos out of the way of the bankers that are dealing with the clients? Because clients come to us 
and they don't want to hear about how this person does it versus that person. They want to get taken care of. So you've got to look at it first from a cultural perspective and also from a client first perspective. So from a cultural perspective, we looked at compensation plans and team-based pay, and we actually started this a number of years ago, and we couldn't figure out the best way to do compensation on a team-based approach. So we don't do a lot of team-based comp. We basically allow the folks to work within their comp plans. We do look at how to get them to work together and, and play together in the sandbox, but we allow them to have their separate comp plans. But then we also talk to them about how if you're looking at a client only from your perspective and you're not attending team meetings and you're not having pre-call plans and you're not looking at the client's entire financial plan, you're going to be soloed and eventually the team's not going to want to work with you because you're only looking out for your best interest. So we spend a lot of time building on the key word is trust. You've got to trust each other and you've got to understand that sometimes you're going to win. Sometimes you're not going to get the business. But if you can make the pie bigger, then everybody's going to win more in the long term. So in order to make that happen, you've got to have trust. So to build trust, you've got to have a culture where people will share, people will trust each other, people will attend meetings team meetings and pre-call planning meetings with the client's best intention in mind. Now, it's all great to say that, but execution is the key. And execution has to be in the hands of the people out in the markets. So in order to do that, one of the things that we uh, we know that is if you know somebody and you've worked with them for a long time, you're going to trust them more than somebody that's brand new. So employee longevity is key. The longer your employees are there, the better, more they're going to trust each other. Having leadership talk about and focus on a culture of team building and trust is paramount. So 10 years ago, when we first started on this journey, we used to have a lot of conversations in our bank about who owns the client. And that still goes on. Many organizations, we don't have that conversation anymore because who owns the client is who's in front of that client. So if a client has four or five people on the team that's working with them, different times, a different person will own that client. And they've got to know when to own it and when to hand it off. So it becomes more, you know, we all like to use sports analogies. It's not so much a football team with a quarterback handing off to a a running back. It's more like a basketball team where everybody's sharing the ball. And again, in order to make that happen, you've got to have the right culture. You've got to have trust. You've got to have longevity of employees. And then you've got, they've got to see each other succeed. So success breeds on success. One thing we talk a lot about is 10 years ago, We used to celebrate when we got a $250,000 new piece of business. And now, 10 years later, with as our financial planning program is involved, as we've worked more in teams, it's no longer taboo for an investment officer to sit down and talk to a trust officer about a client. As all that's happened, in order to celebrate, it's got to be a $2 or $3 million client. And we see those a lot more frequently, those kind of wins than we used to. So the pie is bigger. And people are seeing more opportunities. So it's a long journey. It's not short, but you can get there. I don't even know where to begin to ask him the next question because (laughs) I, and I know from personal experience, because I know many of the folks on your team, that longevity is definitely a key at First Horizon. I mean, you and your whole team have been there more than I can count my last three positions. I mean, long time. And that has to, that has obviously filtered through the organization. And you talk about 10 years ago celebrating one thing over another because you guys do have that longevity. But if there's and you're not doing team based pay. So what advice do you have out there for someone that's trying to just do this now? I mean, you've got 20 years down the road doing this already. 
you know, what are the quick and easy things? If I mean, you're not using compensation. There's really no carrots or sticks. It's trust. How do you build that? So a couple of things that we've done, I think that's helped that. This. First of all, we don't have a, um, what's the best way to say it, a product of the day. We basically have been going on this journey for 10, 15 years or whatever, and we stay consistent with the guiding principles of what makes it work. And then we just try to evolve and improve as we see opportunities. So about five, I'll give you one example of one thing. We, well, a couple of things that we've done. In 2008, after the financial crisis, we looked at our program and we determined that in order to be in the wealth management space, we had to be much better at managed money than we were. So we embarked on a journey to bring managed money, like many organizations have. We established a, our own registered investment advisor. We hired a chief investment officer. And we developed an investment process and philosophy for our folks. And we told our advisors, look, this is the future with planning and managed money along with the products that we already have. That's what you're going to need to be successful in the long term with clients. And it took a few years for them to buy into it. But now we have our product mix is much more diversified. And we saw managed money as a opportunity to improve our program. Another thing that we do, I think that's really helped our teamwork culture is this happened five years ago. We looked at research that Fidelity, who is our one of our partners, provided on what does it take to be a high performer in the industry? And three things stood out to us. To be a high performer, you've got to be great in teams. You've got to be, uh, you can't be a one-trick pony. You've got to have a broad product platform. And the third one is high performers have written business plans. So we incorporated a process where all of our, everybody in our line of business completes an annual personal business plan that includes their marketing plan, their goals, their discovery process, their value proposition, and they share that with each other. And so my goal, if we were uh, teammates, Bob, my goal would be make sure that you hit your goal, your plan, and your goal would be that I hit my goals. So that's really resonated with our firm. Five years later now, everybody does their plan. They share it among the teams and the leaders really enforce that process. So those are a couple of examples of where we stay the course, but when we see an opportunity to take the program forward, we jump on it. And to all of our listeners out there, the thing that you should be hearing from Rums is he's talking about doing things five and 10 years ago. That's vision. And that's really what it takes. It's staying the course having a plan and following it, not just trying to do it overnight. This is stuff that you did five and 10 years ago that have obviously stuck. You've probably made some fine tuning over the course of the past couple of years, but it's longevity. It's a strategy. It just doesn't develop. It's long. And the vision, that's what a lot of organizations are missing. The vision from 2008 that you talk about. So I think that's the message here. So if you want to be where First Horizon is, you had to start five or 10 years ago, or start knowing you might get there in 10 years. And I'll add one more thing, Bob, that I think is important too, because we failed. We fail a lot because we'll try things that they don't work. And I can give you all kinds of examples on that. But if you start something that you think is going to work and it doesn't, if you're going to fail, fail quick. Admit it. Have a culture where people are able to say, look, we've made a mistake. We need to fix this and stop doing it. So there's a saying out there that and I, I don't know who to attribute it to, but part of strategy is what you're not going to do as well. And so be able to you know, take risk, be innovative. But if it's not working, then fail quick and move on. And I don't want to bring up one of the failures, but if it's not a failure, in my opinion, you've changed the financial planning model several times on how you deliver it. 
but you never stopped doing financial planning. You've just changed the delivery, which I think obviously been following you, what you guys have been doing in the industry. It's, it's a case study. It's a wonderful case study. So I know you've made changes. You had this, you had that, but you've always decided financial planning is the way. Right. Absolutely. That's the pillar of our plan. Yes. All right. Let me pass the baton. Well, I mean, you know, just to reinforce some of the important things, you know, having a vision of, of what you want to be when you grow up <laughs> is important. And it's not saying that vision can't change along the way, but our subject here is wealth management. If you have a vision of truly what wealth management is and then start working towards that, it's a journey, right? It takes a while, but what's at the heart of it? At the heart of it is changing your culture, right? And culture change takes a long time. It takes alignment, it takes consistency, and it takes a set of leaders that are constantly beating the drum and being able to communicate that vision. So everybody's rowing in that direction and you eventually get there. And it's, you know, it's a heavier lift to change the culture, but it's well worth it. And that's why we all do what we do, because you can get passionate about something, right? If it's meaningful. And what we do is meaningful, right? There's social relevance in what we do, societal relevance in what we do. So good for you for, you know, seeing the big picture and affecting the culture in a very positive way. So I'm going to kind of ask a question that reinforces some of the stuff that you already said. And that is, we know when an organization is focused on either eliminating or reducing silos or making silos not be as much of a speed bump as they otherwise can be, right? Organization is focused on doing that and creating efficient cross-departmental business flow and cooperation when clients are shared, right? And members, different department members are working as teammates, magic starts happening, right? Because then you're really doing a good job servicing all the client needs. And you're referred to lenders, commercial bankers, private bankers, et cetera. They're part of the equation, right? So if you can get them all working together and sharing stories about their clients and asking like, well, what else can we do with this client based on what you guys do and what, you know, because they trust each other and they're friends and they've been together for a long time, man, that's, that's when you really have a highly functional organization, right? So client needs get served seamlessly, more assets are gathered, those assets are retained, you get client loyalty, but that's a unicorn situation. You don't see it that often, right? Everybody, I think if they really think about it, wants to get there, but that's hard. And you're you're on that journey and you're getting there. So just if we can dig into a few of the details, like you mentioned team meetings. Well, it's one thing to think to say we have team meetings, but it's another thing to say team meetings are a part of our culture. This is how they happen. This is how often you should be participating in team meetings. And this is what gets done in team meetings. This is how they're structured, right? I mean, do you have that kind of stuff? Can you give us some insight into how do you get all that, you know, firing on all cylinders? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of examples. And you're right. It is a journey. And if it's a journey from here to I don't know where, we're maybe halfway there. I don't know where we are, but we're not there. But you're moving in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a few examples. We co-locate people. So right now I'm in Memphis, where our corporate headquarters in, and I'm in a building that's a customer building. So in this building, there are commercial bankers, there are private bankers, there are trust officers, and there are investment advisors and financial planners. So it's a complete customer or client-facing sales force. And they run into each other constantly. The uh, advisors make it a point to go down and see the commercial bankers and, and just to talk to them about, hey, what's going on? Some of that is informal. Some of it is formal. For example, when there's a commercial sales meeting, we've got some product sheets that we ask the wealth team to go to attend the commercial meetings 
and share a little bit about what we do around products, maybe that might be of interest to the commercial bankers. Because again, what we're telling them is, look, you don't have to be an expert on any of this. All you got to know is when a client says something, it's, oh, okay, I know somebody that does that. That's all we're asking them to do. And once they do that, then bring the wealth person to the meeting with them, go together. And the more the banker hears the story that the wealth person saying, obviously, the more comfortable they're going to get with it. And then at that point, then at some point, they can start saying the words instead of asking the advisor to say it. That's one. The other one is we have to follow through. I mean, if a banker takes you to a meeting as an advisor and you don't follow through or do what the client wants or execute, you're going to lose credibility with the client and the commercial banker. So it's important that you do that. We tell them, look, the center of influence is the banker. You've got to make sure that uh, it's like a real estate agent or uh, an accountant or anything else. That is your center of influence, and you've got to treat them as such. So educate them, communicate with them. You know, this is just so basic, but I hear it all the time. For example, Scott, you're the banker, and you take me on a meeting to a meeting with a client, or you set up an introduction. I meet with the client, and then I don't tell you what happens. Now, that's borderline rude, but it happens, right? And yeah. you can't do that. So we have playbooks where we talk about co-locate provide lunch and learn meetings for your bankers where you bring them together by their lunch and teach them about one of your concepts. When you have a sale, make sure that they get credit for it. Tracking referrals in in any bank is a nightmare, but make sure that you track it and make sure that that banker doesn't have to come back to you and say, hey, what happened to my referral? Keep them up to date and then make sure they get paid on it. And when there's a big deal, let's celebrate it together. When we lose a deal, let's talk about why we lost the deal. We had a recent example where we met with a business owner that sold his business and we lost the deal. And we were having a, the advisor called the client afterwards and said, hey, what happened? Why did we lose the deal? And they said, well, the competitor brought in a concept that you didn't bring in. So that advisor learned, okay, I've got to think holistically about this client and not just about the investment piece. So we don't always succeed, but I mean, tactically, just repeating myself, make sure that the meetings happen. And they're accountable to each other to make it happen. We don't monitor it. They make it happen. Attend sales meetings, bring ideas, respect your referral sources. I think that those are a few of the things that now happen all the time. And you mentioned you have a playbook. So is there a playbook of sorts for what I'll call a team client review meeting where let's say you have four teammates that meet and they're each responsible for bringing two clients to the table and discussing current situation and then brainstorming over what else can we do with this client? Do you do anything like that? Yes. What we do is a couple of things. One is every spring, our commercial team does a review of their bigger clients. So they actually sit down, look at the clients and think about, okay, how did it go with this client last year? What products did they use? What opportunities are there? Our advisors attend those meetings now. So they're looking at the client's information and they can actually go, hey, you know what? Have you thought about this or that. And so they actively participate in those meetings every spring with each commercial banker when they're looking at their top 50 to 100 clients. So that happens pretty much across the bank. That's one example of what you're describing. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's cool. So one more question, I want to turn it back to Bob. Do you also do things like what I'll call client appreciation events where you're you bring your together and you have some event and then you invite some of the, whether it be, you know, lenders, commercial bankers, private bankers, whatever. So they get to mix and mingle with some of the wealth clients. Yeah. So we don't do wealth events. We don't do private banking events. We do, or commercial events. We do bank events. 
So for example, in this building that I just described where we've got the commercial and private, and if there's going to be an event, they're all together planning it and working together. So that happens quite a bit. For example, I'll give you another example. If our trust officers have a continuing ed program for their attorneys, the advisors and the financial planners know about it and they're invited to attend as well. So again, it's the culture thing of it's not a siloed event. It's a bank event. And that pretty much is the way things are done. I love that. Yeah, that's great. Good for you guys. All right, Bob, back to you. Bank event. I mean, I'll never lose my banker's roots. I'm telling you, that just that's just music to my ears when you hear bank event and not mortgage night or, or CD night or whatever. It's just that's the really way. And that goes into my question, too, because it's it's, again, client facing. It's a client facing strategy. The bank doesn't look at first horizon mortgage, first horizon lending, first horizon brokerage. They look at first horizon. And that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, let's talk about digital because that might be a challenge in a client facing strategy. What are your views about digital wealth management as augmenting the human element of what we're talking about here? Is there a place for it? Absolutely, there is a place for it. That's one of the areas where we've not done a good job and we've got some work to do. So when digital first started being talked about, we looked at a digital platform and our advisors were scared to death. You can't bring that in. It's going to compete with us which is totally counter to what I've just been talking about for the last few minutes, but they were really afraid of what it would do to their clients. And so we sort of went in lukewarm. In other words, we put a platform up. We didn't advertise it. We just put it out there to see what would happen. If I had to do it over again, and not everybody in our organization agrees with this, I would give the digital platform to the advisors. And you know, there was this whole thing about if you're only charging 30 basis points for digital, can you afford to pay your advisors and maybe you shouldn't pay them? And I'm thinking, you know what? I think that's sort of a marketing cost that you've got to absorb into your program. If you give the platform to the advisors, they will introduce it to their clients and they will embrace it and it will become part of our program. And so it was, a, it was you know, I talk about us trying to battle silos. It, when we first introduced it, it was a silo. Now we've sort of almost shut it down. But I think it's needed. There are many people that will start with digital and move to advice. There are many people that want both. So at some point soon, we need it. And I still think give it to the advisors and let them sell it because I think they'll do a good job. Well, I have to agree with that because those advisors that have, and you know, and your program probably hasn't had it, but there's some advisors still out there that have five, six, seven hundred clients, which is just, you can't manage that. Yes. And if the broker is involved with merging some of those to digital, why not pay them for it? It's helping them. It's helping the efficiency and the whole overall program and really looking at it from that perspective. I'm thinking about how do you become a bank digital solution? And, and I know there's probably some regulations around having things separate and things of that nature, but that's got to be a challenge to have a bank wealth management solution where a customer can go into something and see everything. Yeah, I think that's the gold at the end of the rainbow, I think. And the bank that gets there or the banks that get there, I think, will win out at the end. Because again, you think about it, I'll use a simple example. When online banking was first introduced, it was going to compete with the bankers. We were going to close every branch. ATMs were the same thing, right? right. No and that's not the case. All it was is another channel to help your clients and take care of full balance sheet advice. And I think to your point, I think digital banking or digital asset management is the same thing. It's another tool that's going to enhance the client experience. 
Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. And let the customer decide if they want to call, click, or walk in, right? right. Let the yeah. customer choose which delivery method they want to engage the bank with. So, no, I, I absolutely agree. And keeping it broker at the broker level makes a lot of sense. Scott? Yeah. So, there's a lot of history here, right? And you bring up online banking, which is a perfect example. And history will tell you that market share always goes to the perfect combination of high tech and high touch, right? right? So to your point, if you had to do it again, you would give it to the advisor. Totally. I completely agree. And that advisor will have some clients that will do a lot of self-service stuff and other clients that'll just access it to see what their portfolio looks like, right? Right. But that perfect combination, that's it's a balancing act of high tech and high touch is where it's all going. It's interesting because we've talked about for years client segmentation, right? And mapping delivery mechanisms to the different client segments. And most of the time you look at client segments from investable assets or whatever, right? However you do it. But I always talk about now that client segmentation has two dimensions, right? So the one dimension is, you know, low net worth to high net worth or ultra high net worth, right? That's a horizontal dimension. But the vertical dimension is self-service digital on the bottom and very high touch on the top, right? right? So now you have this whole almost like quadrants, right? And you have to figure out, all right, what's the best way? Where do we map different delivery mechanisms to that two-dimensional model now to make it work? But the secret is realizing that there's a ton of overlap there, right? And if you don't provide digital, somebody else is, and they're going to be sucking assets away from you, right? The other thing that scares me that I've talked about frequently is we may have some of that next generation as bank clients, but we don't have them as wealth clients or investment services clients. And that's where all the assets are going, right? $70 trillion worth of wealth is going to be transferred in the next 20 years or so to that next generation. And if we don't get better at getting them under our tent you know, on the investment side, the analogy I've used over and over again, it's like we're in a game of musical chairs. We're relying on the baby boomers, right? The music's going to stop. We're not going to have a chair. So how do we do that, right? So not only is digital important, but app-based digital, because a lot of these next geners do everything on their phone. So you have to have an app as well. Now, what's interesting is because, and I do a lot of research on this side of the equation, is that we have a lot of the digital providers that have now as a strategy front and center integrating with bank core systems. So I'm seeing that more and more, right? So, and that's back to your original point. I mean, that's the holy grail, right? To be able to see that 360 view of the client. And oh, by the way, also have that 360 view in your CRM system so you can act appropriately on all the opportunities that it represents and have some data mining and some triggers and next best actions and all that kind of stuff, right? So that's where the stuff is going. You agree? 100%. 100%. Yeah. The research that we look at is even, I'll just call them youngsters, I, you know, the millennials, the Gen X, they want advice. We're seeing they want advice. And we're also seeing that, and this is all segments or all generations, they are more now tending to consolidate assets. At one point, it used to be cool to have three or four different money managers, yeah. and I do business with this, and I do business with that. Life's getting complex. It's hard to understand if I'm diversified or not. I don't know what fees I'm paying. If I've got four or five different, I'm getting conflicting advice and I want to be able to use digital. So we're seeing clients actually consolidating their assets and consolidating their advice. So unless you can do all the things that you've just described, you're going to be sort of left out in the cold. So I agree hundred percent. Yeah. And they're consolidating with those that they trust, right? So exactly. back to what you originally said, trust is the ultimate objective engendering trust. And you referred to 
the discovery process just briefly. And to me, that's one of the most important components of your process as an advisor to engender trust is doing really good discovery. So you understand the clients inside and out. You know what the emotional factors are that influence their financial decisions and you have their backs and they know it, right? Then they're yeah. going to consolidate their assets with you. That's 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 our objective. That should be our objective, right? Yeah, we spend a lot of time educating in our practice management courses on conducting discovery. And conducting discovery for the typical advisor is hard because they've got to, the first thing is you've got to ask great questions. And the most important thing is you've got to listen. And a lot of us aren't the greatest at listening. So because listening is hard, it's tough. It's hard. You've got to listen with the right frame of mind and empathy and not listen just to respond. So we have some people that do a great job of listening and we have people that need improvement, but you're right on the discovery, which is also, you know, financial planning is part of the discovery. That's basically the base of the whole pyramid. You get the information right and the client's goals and aspirations right, then the rest of it builds on that. You get it wrong, you know, and that happens a lot when you're dealing with, you know, one of the segments we haven't talked about is women, right? You've got couples and typically the male is the first to go. The woman inherits the assets. If you don't understand what she's been telling you all along and conducted discovery, out you go. So absolutely. I agree with what you're saying 100%. Yep. So that right there, you just brought up as a subject for a whole nother podcast, but absolutely <laughs> is, is so incredibly true. Yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth. I'm like, okay, just wrote that down for a future podcast. Niche marketing to women in wealth management. Yep. All right. Well, Bob, what do you say we have some fun? Let's go for the lightning round question. And there's only three of us to answer this question today, but let's go for it. You know, and the question is, how will you spend New Year's Eve? Rome's will ask you first. Okay, Bob, I'm going to answer that question. Before I answer, I'm going to tell you a quick story, if you don't mind. Okay. This is for you. Uh, Okay. (laughs) uh, We just talked about Chris Sloniker. Chris Sloniker is our head of insurance services. He's right now conducting a practice management seminar with our private bankers. And he just made the comment in there that he said, 10 years ago, if you bought a life insurance policy at First Horizon, it would take you two weeks to get the policy paid for and in hand. And he said, last week, we did one in seven minutes. Wow. So, so I thought you'd appreciate that story. He told our group. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that we've been looking for, right? I love that story. <laughs> that is exactly, I mean, having spent a dozen years at Prudential, I was trying to do that. We didn't quite get there, but that is way cool. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for asking about New Year's Eve. We have a tradition, my wife and I, we have a number of close friends here in Memphis. And one particular friend, his wife, have a seafood bait on New Year's Eve. So we all go to their house. We all bring different seafood. We put it in a big pot. We boil it. And then we drink wine and beer, whatever else. And we pour it on a big table and have a seafood buffet at midnight. (laughs) I love it. That sounds great. Uh, Scott. I'm going with Rome's. (laughs) 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 That sounds much better than mine. So this is going to be boring, but so we're uh, we're visiting family in New Jersey right before New Year's Eve, and we're probably coming back right around the 30th to Massachusetts. The 30th happens to be my birthday. So it's kind of hard celebrating my birthday on the 30th and New Year's Eve on the 31st and like kind of making it all the way through the holidays. So my guess is we're going to be a little mellow on New Year's Eve. We normally are. So we may be boring. So we have no special plans other than travel, visiting some friends and family and yeah, celebrating my birthday. How about you, Bob? 
I'm got, I still I want an invitation to Rome's place. Though. <laughs> I, I, I do too. I do too. But you know, it's not the first time you're having a birthday on December 30th. I mean, really, you must be used to this by now. I've practiced a few times. Yes. <laughs> we 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 have a tradition too. We go out with another couple to a seafood restaurant, and then we end up at, back at someone else's house. This year's our house by probably 11 o'clock to watch the New Year's Eve show and drink a lot of champagne, but nowhere near as fun as uh, what Rome sounds like he's going to be doing. But thanks for sharing. That's the fun that we like to have on the end of this podcast. So thanks so much, Rome, for the great conversation. We really appreciate all that you shared today. And while I'm at it, let me also thank Jeff Bartney and Kat Seifer from the BISA Ameriprise for their continuing sponsorship of this podcast series. And, you know, we do have other podcast series out there. So don't forget to check into Untangling Fintech and our Industry Leadership and Success podcast series as well. These can be found wherever you get your other podcasts and music. And I'm assuming you get other podcasts. So Scott, is there anything else I'm missing? Yeah, no, I think you covered it. And yes, to our listeners, please do subscribe to our podcast. That helps and leave comments if you'd like to. Romes, thank you for sharing all your insights. I was excited when I heard you were going to be on one of our podcasts and that was well-founded excitement because, I mean, you've been at this for a while, even though you're a young guy and <laughs> you have a lot of good insights. And like you said, you've tried a lot of things and you haven't shied away from saying, oh, that failed. Let's try the next thing. And that's how you get experience, right? So, and congrats to you for really focusing on building a culture because you guys have clearly done that. And we hear that over and over again. So again, your insights are very much appreciated and we loved having you on our podcast. So thank you. And thanks to everybody that has listened to the podcast and we hope to see you all soon. All right. Bye, Happy holidays, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. Be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling FinTech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.